This conversation is about mental health issues, racism and other systems of oppression, as well as many other things. And towards the end of it, we touch on the Predatory Peacekeepers campaign. Although we don't go into it too deeply, that does involve referring to some incidents of rape and sexual abuse. And it's also the first Getting Better Acquainted conversation that I've recorded in a library. So rather than saying to marginalised description, you are damaged psychologically or there is something wrong with you, what we're saying is that everything is right with you, but we are living in a world where you are assaulted constantly. And because you are assaulted constantly, it's even more important that you look after yourself. And also because you have been theorised and you have been pathologised for a long period of time, looking after yourself is also kind of putting two fingers up to power. Hello. I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. Today we're getting better acquainted with Ghislaine. Hello, Ghislaine. Hi, Dave. How are you? (laughs) I'm all right. Good. Yeah. It's always interesting to, to, to do these conversations with someone who I've literally never met really before mm-hmm, today. Mm-hmm. Although I do feel like I know you because I communicate with you all the time on Twitter, I guess. Yes, it's quite odd for me as well, I must say, um, because I don't think that I know you. I know a little bit of you, right. but I don't think I know you personally. That's so I good, think that's the distinction. That's a good distinction, absolutely. So the first question that I ask everybody is, how do you know me? Well, I know you through Twitter, and I think we follow each other on Twitter. So I've been reading some of the material that you share on Twitter and some of your thoughts, and I think that's about it. I think we've had one or two exchange via email, mainly to arrange this conversation, but we haven't spoken much, have we? No, not at all, really. I mean, I'm a real fan of your your tweets. Thank you. And and, and your writing in general. Like, I've, I've... so how I know you is a little bit different from how you know me because I've read articles that you've written and Thank things you. like that. I feel like I, I learn a lot from the tweets that you tweet, but I also feel like it's... I, I don't really know how to describe it, really, but it's, it's, it, you're, you're, you're often tweeting about experiences that, I, that are not mine, that have, I have little reference points, so I really appreciate the opportunity to learn about other people's experiences. But at the same time, I'm also really aware that people in your situation are often asked to educate people right. like me and mm-hmm. so I don't mm-hmm. want to be part of that kind of burdening of you to like educate me but yes. at the same time I've really I've really benefited from your your words thank yeah. you I really do appreciate and understand the kind of the dilemma <laughs> in terms of wanting to uh, learn more and not wanting to be a burden right. I tend to be I'm sure you might have picked that from my interaction on Twitter I tend to be quite open I tend to spend quite a bit of time really trying to explain what it is that I mean by particular view or opinions or tweets. I try to do that. I think from my perspective, yes, there is a social expectation on the marginalised to kind of educate people who are more privileged or more powerful in society. But I think that's kind of okay to some degree. I suppose my approach and my response is always related to how people approach me in the first place. I tend to kind of steer clear of people who feel too entitled to my time or to my attention or people who essentially come wanting some beef um, and ask question as a way to essentially make a point. So I think with time and having been on Twitter for I think for about four years or so, I've become quite adept, I think, at 
identifying, you know, perhaps what is not said. So reading in between the lines when people approach me. And I'd say that's probably about 20, 10, 20% of my interaction. The rest of the time I'm happy to share. So right. I don't have problem with, with people asking questions and right. people saying they don't understand generally. But yes, I do get a lot of trolling as well and some, and some harassment as well on Twitter. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I mean... I've I've experienced a tiny bit of, of harassment uh, uh, and, and sort of trolling on Twitter, but that's only because I stick my neck out. Yeah. Uh, like whereas I feel like a lot of people just get it just because mm. of their who they are and not because mm. of anything necessarily they say. I, I think it's both. I think. Well, I, I don't know this. I can only speak from my perspective as a black woman. But it seems that it is both because there are some subjects that when I touch upon, I'm pretty sure that I will be trolled. That I will have some some kind of e-backlash as, a, as, I, as I say and those subjects tend to be feminism, anything around feminism anything around Islam anything around race and racism and also things to do with war and the army so, I, so it seems to be the four kind of subjects that I tend to get a lot of negative reaction to, so I think that's interesting yeah, no, that is interesting. I mean, and it's definitely, like, in the only areas where I've ever got any pushback, that they have been when I've talked about gender, not necessarily... Uh-huh. Like, I, you know, uh-huh. you could say from a feminist point of view, but I've been generally talking about masculinity uh-huh. rather than sort of telling women what to do. But right. definitely, any time I sort of touch on those areas, yeah. definitely that's when the pushback comes. Yes. Um, which is not mm. to say that I get it anywhere near as bad mm. as anybody else. I, I guess I was quite bullied at school, so I, oh. I'm very nervy around it online interactions right. because they can really remind me of what it's like to have yeah. lots of people yeah. shouting at you yeah. Yeah. <laughs> in real life you know it's mm. not this distinction between real life and online I don't really I, see much I, of one. I don't I don't I don't either and I think that's very important that's a very important point you've just raised in terms of how we make our voice heard while look while also looking after ourselves and each other and that's something that I'm becoming more and more aware it's a fine line certainly I think that in terms of my own well-being and in terms of my own safety being able to speak my truth and to speak my reality is definitely something that grounds me and gives me a sense of of safety and, and belonging but at the same time, the backlash must be taken into consideration. Certainly, I've spoken to a lot of black women and a lot of women of colour and other marginalised women, including people with mental health problems, who have to add, I stay off Twitter for that particular reason because I don't want to be harassed because it's just too much for me to handle it. I handled it or I have handled it in kind of day-to-day life, at work or when I was uh, in school, and I just don't want to be in that situation again. So I think it, it's a shame that people are not aware of, not always aware of the impact of their action on other people mm-hmm. and particularly on different group of people and people who have very painful experience of being treated quite differently and quite badly by groups. So right. yeah, I get that. It's a complicated one, isn't it, Twitter as well, because at the same time as it, it, it puts you at risk of that kind of yeah. interaction, it also yeah. gives you an opportunity to connect with people right. who are like you, who That's have the right. same experiences That's as right. you. So right. I've, as someone with mental health issues, I've found it really powerful to yeah. follow other people who have mental health yes. issues and to share those experiences. Mm. And yeah. I'm sure it's the same if you experiences of racism Absolutely. and things like that. I think so too. But it's, it is that kind of like, it, it empowers, if you like, that's a complicated word, some people, and, mm. and, but then also 
makes a lot of people afraid. So it's a, a complicated line to walk. I think. I think it's very it's very interesting in terms of what happened to, to power online, particularly for group. We tend to be at the receiving end of abuses of power. So, for instance, people with mental health problems, you know, people of colour. So there is something in terms of the the power dynamics that kind of shift when you have, for instance, professionals interacting openly with people when they might see in services. And I know there's a lot of controversies and some professionals simply don't want to follow or even be followed by people who have your services. I remember reading the biography of someone, I think, he, I think it was a psychiatrist, um, and he said that he will not follow people who he could happen to treat. And I think, but how do you know that? Yeah. <laughs> how, how do you, you know how that? Because you know that? that? that's yeah. potentially, that's everybody. Right. Um, so that's the kind of them and us distinction to some degree perhaps blur a lot more when you're on social media. So I think that is a great thing because people can be held accountable for what they do. At the same time, people are still, some people are still trying to maintain the distance or the distinction between different human beings, which I right. think... I think it tells us, again, a lot about what goes on in, in, in the real world. Right. It's very odd to be saying that, actually. If you have experienced what panic attack or, or what the low mood, or if you've been bereaved. So basically everybody yeah. I would not interact with unless you call doctor and you're a psychiatrist or psychologist. But even then, how do you know that the person hasn't spent a year in hospital? Right, right, um, right, right, absolutely. I mean, and that's an interesting... That's an interesting thing, I think, as well, in terms of sort of when you kind of think about intersectional understanding of the way that power works. Sometimes I feel like, and I'm not saying that people in my structural position are not massively, massively benefiting in loads and loads of ways, but also I feel sometimes online that you can see a, like a photograph of a white man and you can think, oh, I can totally let rip at this person fully assuming that they have no uh, areas where they're less privileged mm. and actually you know that white man might be working class that might that white man might have mental health issues and things like that and so it's an interesting it's an interesting thing where whereby yeah I, it, power I, I don't know I, I see it in terms of I don't know, it's not really my place to say it too much, but I, I guess I'm in some feminist groups and I sort of see sort of white feminism if you like like women assuming that that they don't have any power so mm. they can just let rip at other people like mm. fully full force and I'm and I'm not trying to police anyone's mm. anger but I think there's still considerations I guess of other human beings when you interact with them even if I am pro anger I don't I'm not against anger I I uh, I think I I agree to a large to a large amount it's very it's very easy if you have been at the receiving end of structural oppression to kind of almost seek out some kind of retribution and how we do that can be helpful and sometimes it can be unhelpful as well. Right. Okay. I think yeah. the bottom line is that regardless of people's structural positioning and situation, we need to try, we do need to try to be kind to each other. I don't think that being violent or being aggressive 
or kind of reversing the table, so to speak. Not that that could structurally be done, but in terms of relationally, right. that can be done relationally. Yes. That's right. That is going to be the solution to to marginalization or to or to oppression. And that, I don't think that is the way to liberation. I think there's something to be said about a lot of people who belong to more privileged social group being completely unaware or perhaps willfully ignorant about how things that they say or even they have just been in the space can trigger people off. And that's not sometimes something that can be easily helped when the people that you're interacting with remind you of the people who have done so much damage to you um, over the years and to generation and through history. So it's difficult. But I think that as human beings and as responsible human beings, we need to try and be mindful of that, that sometimes the line can be crossed in terms of being violent towards other people. And I don't think that women can be sexist. I don't think that black people can be racist. But I do think that we can be violent as well right. and we can be helpful as well right. relationally and individually and certainly this is not something that I aspire to be even though even though I accept that some of the things that I say and some of the things that I write will create some discomfort and might be experienced as violence due to people being accustomed to not being challenged right. on certain issues. So there's a lot of there's a lot of factors to, to put in, in the balance. Certainly it's not my I don't wake up in the morning and I hope nobody does <laughs> uh, thinking well I'm going to collect uh, white tears or male tears <laughs> or things of that nature. Right. I understand the sentiment. I think it's kind of uh, humorous up to a point yeah, yeah, yeah. but some people also are getting hurt so yeah. we need to we need to kind of keep that in check if I mean, we can I, I think it's a very reasonable reaction yeah. to like joke around those yeah. kind of areas but I also it is complicated like you know when people talk about male tears again that erases black men quite often exactly, um, and exactly. like you know so like to hear like white women crowing around about male tears yeah. c- c- could could be very different if, if, mm. it, if, if it's a black man uh, yeah. seeing that than if it's me I, I should say as well for listeners who are like who might have gone like any listeners you might have gone like oh racism and sexism goes every way like what you're Mm. referring to is kind of a a more recent definition of those words as being about power as well as prejudice right yes absolutely power prejudice and historical luggage and baggage that we carry within structures yeah because i mean I, i often find people who look like me kind of bridle at the idea of being told that, that racism just goes one way but it's because it's a, a redefinition like so I'm, I'm totally down with that redefinition yeah. but I always think it's quite it's not your job to educate yeah. white people about that but I always think it's my job to sort of say if you're going to go hang on make a big fuss yeah. about this like at least engage with what they mean when they say the word racism mm. rather than what you think they mean you know absolutely right and we can we can have various definitions of racism right. coexist and that's absolutely fine and a structural uh, or systemic definition of racism which is what I tend to adhere to is one of a number of possible definitions of right. racism so that needs to be said at the same time what we need to do is be, is critically engage with certain definition and realise who set the definition and whose interests are being served by certain definitions. So, for instance, if I take the view that racism 
involve simply individual individualized racist bigoted act that takes out of the equation issues to do with for instance the history and things that people might do unconsciously right. so we need to be aware that there are multiple layers of racism and prejudice and actually that this is a very very complex complex area what i resent is when people seek to impose a definition other another definition right. okay this is this is my problem and this is often something that i find with people who are more socially a privilege in terms of uh, in terms of race so again i'm not saying that white people white sorry black people people of color generally cannot be prejudiced cannot be bigoted of course they can of course they can right uh, what i'm saying is that we haven't got the power to actually act on those preconception or on those prejudices to affect people structurally yeah. and that is the difference and if you talk to most people of color they would tell you that you know the average person calling us racist slurs we can just about live with you know what we are more concerned about is actually being stopped by the police right. not having differential outcome in terms of uh, the criminal justice system having, having differential outcome in terms of the education system in terms of the health system in terms of every system possible that exists in society that is what we concern about much more than somebody say that oh can i touch my hair which is part of the problem of course yeah. but certainly this is not what is going to impact on my life expectancy well it's that it's, it, i guess it's a wide definition of racism isn't it that, that allows uh, people who are not overt racist on the street to, to think we're outside that racist yeah. system which we're not you know yeah. like as much as I'd like to be outside of no. that racist system I'd, I'd I, you know I didn't ask to be white or whatever yeah, exactly. um, I'd love to be outside that racist system but I'm not no. and, I, and I can't I can't remove that no. fact no. and you know like my niece is is, is a, a, a girl of color and so I I you know I, I directly have experienced my white privilege in relation to her you mm. know in, and that's like on a family like mm. we're blood relations mm. and yet I can't I, I can't be in her position as much mm. as I want to mm. Mm. you know and yeah I mean this it's an interesting thing as well with definitions like um, a lot of the time when I'm talking about masculinity and gender like I get a lot of men saying look in the dictionary you know mm. like why are you talking about this word why don't you just look in the dictionary and you know men wrote the dictionary exactly. white people wrote the dictionary yeah. so you know to, to hold on to those words as if that's like oh if it's that's in the dictionary then that's that is racism that is uh, misogyny I think to hold on to those those words without allowing them to evolve and change yeah it's it's an odd thing uh, but i think it's it's very symptomatic of and i said that quite often in terms of people being educated in this country i don't know whether we foster critical thinking skills as much as we think we do this is something that i've been thinking about for some for some time as to whether people who are educated as a country we are a country generally of you know educated people and we more kind of aware of what's going on in the world and books and and knowledge is so widely accessible with the internet and yet very basic critical thinking skills around difference around marginalization around power seem to be completely completely lacking so i don't know what's that about actually i'm i'm sure if it could be plenty of theories i mean I, i'm tempted to sort of say that i think that 
I, I agree with that. But I, uh, the, the, I think maybe the, the legacy of that is partly to do with the legacy of empire and the legacy mm-hmm. of class. Mm-hmm. In that it's like in this country, everybody's taught to obey the rules in certain kinds of ways. This is the box that you're in. This is the box that, and, and everyone's like, you know, how you take your tea and all of that stuff is all very codified. And like that is all about obeying and thinking, and not not challenging. You're your, right, actually. I think your you're critical right. position. I think. I think you're right. I think that people like to think that think of of themselves as being quite rebellious but by and large people are you know people are compliant mm-hmm. people like to be told what to think people like to be told what to what to say and i think perhaps to some degree it's because it provides people with a sense of safety with a sense of familiarity that can be reassuring especially in in in, in this climate right where there's a lot of insecurity a lot of uncertainty yes. Um, and a lot of, st- of austerity. So people want something to hold on to a lot right. of the time. And uh, sometimes they hold on to things that are not even helpful or uh, beneficial to them. Right. So they hold on to familiarity in the same way as a child that is being abused will run to the person who abused them because they don't know anybody, they don't know anybody else. So that's right. the only person who can provide comfort is also the person who's doing the damage. So right. I think there's a little bit of that dynamics as well. That's interesting, yeah. I mean, I think that's, you can see that in, like, men, like, holding on to our privilege desperately, even though to release that privilege would also be to liberate ourselves from all of, right. from other things that patriarchy do to men. Um, but, but, but men don't understand that they're... That, 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 in protecting their position, holding on to that. They're, they're doing damage to themselves and no, to other that men. That is absolutely right. That is absolutely right. And, and I think part of the reason for that is because the way we have presented power and the way that we have presented privilege as being essentially a unidirectional dynamic. Right. But actually, privilege is co-constructed. It is uh, intersubjective. So in the same way that you are privileged by maybe some some social characteristics you are also damaged by that so in the same way that you might have social power you also are damaged uh, psychically or psychologically by being in a position where you have to cut aspect of yourself in order to maintain a sense of superiority over certain groups but people don't understand how they are also damaged how they are also victims in that system Mm -hmm. that actually privilege them on some on some level as well yeah it's 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 it, yeah it's so th- yeah the second question i ask everybody which is which we i mean the, the conversation is so interesting already that i feel like i, I better ask this or i never ask right. is is uh, what do you do now okay uh, <laughs> i do different things i wear different hats i'm quite active in the community so i try to do a lot of stuff around raising awareness of mental health and particularly of the importance of self-care, of looking after ourselves, particularly for communities who tend to be marginalised and have very poor experiences of mental health in the system. So that's one thing that I do. I write, although I have to say that I've, I've experienced some kind of writer's block for some weeks now, so I haven't been able to produce something, but I do aspire to write different things for different platforms. I study. I also am a therapist. So when I get the chance, I do different things in the community around, you know, session. I try to do more group than one-to-one sessions. I do that. And then when I have the time, I try to complete a doctorate, which has been an absolute nightmare. I must be an I've been on that for I don't know how many years. Hopefully I'll get that uh, sorted one But you're day. doing so many other things that it yeah. makes sense that it's hard to, to get to the end of that. It's, 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 yeah. And also the doctorate that I'm doing is in clinical psychology. So I don't know if you know anything about uh, mental health profession, but it's one of the most 
a selective elitist, I would say, even though a lot of my colleagues would kind of front that I've said that profession. And it's definitely not easy for black women to be in that world. Definitely not easy. I think the latest figure indicate that something like 1% of all people who get into clinical psychology are black. The underrepresentation is massive. That's a problem for a lot of people. It's been a problem for me. And also there's something around the models themselves which are quite male-centric, Eurocentric as well, quite Western view on what it is to be healthy and how we go about maintaining health and what it is to be functioning or to be adaptive in a world that is quite dysfunctional and maladjusted as well, if that was a person. So there is a lot, I suppose, if you come from from a worldview that is quite in clash, I'd say, with what the dominant model of services present. There's a lot to process, and I think that's been part of the struggle. I think the ambivalence that I want to, I want to, do I fit in, do I don't fit in, right. do I want to do that, do I want to... So, yes, there's been a lot of questions. I'm not sure whether the people around me have necessarily been able to support me with some of the dilemmas, because, to be honest, they've never had a black woman. <laughs> so it was like, OK, we don't know what to do, so maybe she's a problem, or maybe, you know... So there was, there was, there was that as well. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting thing because it's so needed for people of colour to be in that profession. As far as, for, in my opinion, from the out, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, st- I'm still a white guy. I shouldn't really be pronouncing about these things, but like, because you know, there are lots of different kinds of people who want to access those services, mm-hmm. and if it's all white men or white people, then mm-hmm. that's a, another barrier. Yeah. And I've I've been in the process of trying to get therapy on, on the NHS, and. I found it so hard to do that. And every time I've been, you know, filling in another form or, like, having another uh, assessment with a different department or whatever, I've always thought, it's really hard for me, and I'm a middle-class white man, Mm. right? So how hard must it be if if English isn't your first language or if you're you're Mm. a woman or all sorts of different things that Mm. could make it harder? Like, so... It's, it's terrifying to me mm. the amount of barriers there are for people mm. to get in. Mm. But then I'd, once they get in, as, you, as you're sort of saying, like it's, a, it's a certain kind mm. of therapy that mm. has a certain, certain biases that, yeah, those biases definitely exist. And, and there are other ways of being therapeutic than this main model, right? Absolutely, absolutely. I've supported and I've worked with so many people who have not wanted to accept therapy because they've never seen a therapist of colour. So it is a problem. Similarly, actually, there's a lot of men who have trouble getting into therapy because of gender norms, because right. of social expectation, and also because of the way we do therapy, which tends to meet better the needs of white, middle-class, educated mm-hmm. women. So if you kind of outside this norm, you'll find that you will have perhaps more challenges or more barriers to A, access services, and B, remain in services, mm-hmm. um, and C, have a decent experience of services, and even D, have decent outcomes. Uh, so it's, it's quite complex. At the same time, if, if you look at the, the pyramid of power of mental health services, you tend to find that white men... Surprise, surprise! At the top of the of the of the pyramid, even though the profession is mainly a female profession, and the same thing. So, if you look at mental health services and and mental health profession in particular, you have, of course, like everywhere else, you have a hierarchy 
of professions. So the higher up you go up the hierarchy of mental health services, the, the wider right. the wider it is. So, for instance, if you look at uh, you look at social workers, you look at a psychiatric nurse. There's a lot of diversity. So then you 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 get onto maybe management phase a lot less. So if you look at psychology, even within psychology, you have a kind of hierarchies. So if you take if you look at the more kind of higher status branch, which clinical psychology where I'm doing is, then you will find that it's is whiter as well than right. a counselling psychology for 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 example. So the higher up the hierarchy you go, the whiter it is. And the problem, of course, is that the people would tend to access services at the bottom of the year case they tend to be poorer they tend to be darker they tend to have more adverse life experiences so it's it's um, it can be not always but it can be a problem if the psychologist or if the therapist that you see hasn't uh, been exposed to difference too much and they've had a fairly cocooned existence it can be a problem and as a profession i think we are starting perhaps to to recognize that it is a problem on the one hand and on the other hand I think that we are very resistant to changing and doing things differently so that doesn't help the situation but I think as human being we don't like change very much so we kind of resist that wherever we can right therapy is a a complicated thing I am I am I imagine for people of color I mean I imagine this base and I've read a lot of your work so basically you you're, you've influenced my views on this but I already was towards this I mean the psychology in itself has been used mm. you know to to pathologize people of color that's right and I mean, you know, some of the terrible abuses of, of right. the police system and, 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 and the justice system and things like that have also been around mental health. A lot That's of right. the, the people who are shot uh, right. are, are people, people with mental problem. health issues. I mean, and that's that's not even just people of colour. There's also, you know, if you're a white person with mental health issues, you're more likely Absolutely. to be hurt by the police. In fact, yeah. it's, you know, you're, you're more, yeah, you're more likely to be treated like a black person right. if you are a white person with mental health issues, which is not, you know, I'm not saying that's... That's yeah, good yeah, for yeah, anyone, but, you know what I mean? But also, you know, you can speak to this much more than I can, but the systems that we have that are oppressing people are also part of the reason why people have mental health issues in the first place, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think I find that even as a white man, I feel like a lot of my mental health issues come from being a white man uh, and having patriarchal issues, you know, growing up and being bullied at school and being othered at school, which, you know, which is not the same as being a person of colour. Absolutely not. But but, you know, it's real that the, the fear I have is real. It's not, it's not like a, a thing inside my head where I'm afraid that people will hurt me. People have hurt me. <laughs> and so I can only imagine that's like times 10 or times 20 or however much for, for a person of colour yeah. uh, trying to access psychological services. There's a lot, there's a lot there in, 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 in what you've just said. I think it's very complex. There is multiple levels of, of complexity and of, of, uh, of nuance at play in relation to how people of colour or marginalised group generally interact with mental health services. And in particular, I'm going to speak about psychotherapy and, and psychology because this is, my, this is my domain. But for instance, as you said, there is a long history of people of colour being seen through deficient lens um, and, and that goes back centuries. So the average person, I can tell you, the average person on the street know 
of that history, right? Um, so, for instance, I have been told, why would I want to go to people who not long ago thought that I was subhuman? Right, what do you want right. me to go and seek help there? I do not want to seek help there. So this is a reality. I'm not sure whether services know that actually people do not forget this kind of history and the onus is on them as service, as system, to prove to people that actually they've moved on from that history, right. that they do not adhere to those views, because otherwise the marginalised person is going to think, actually, on balance, it's more likely that people would have been influenced by those few, which I believe they are. And it's the same thing whether you, you know, you're LGBT, you would think, actually, the person that I have is more likely to be homophobic right. or transphobic. Right. So you have to prove to me that you're not going to do me damage because people in society will look like you and historically, you have done damage. So that is one level. On another level, you also have social expectation around strength and, you know, around being a superhuman. So you have to be able to cope at whatever, you know, life throws at you. You're not expected to be comp- contemplative you're not expected to actually say, oh, actually this hurts, what does that mean for me? Because as you know, black people, and people of colour generally have been, again for a long period of time, considered to be less intelligent, less uh, socially adept, right. less emotionally adept, etc., etc. So for a long time, for instance, people, black people could not be depressed because depression was not something that you found in black people, which was very, of course, very convenient given that the condition that we were forced to survive um, survive under. So it, it was helpful. It was very mm. convenient to say, well, don't worry. They can't be depressed. You right. know, they can't actually, they haven't got that level of intelligence right. to be able to experience depression. And again, if you look at services today, surprise, surprise, what we found is that black people are much less likely to be diagnosed with depression, right? right. But much right. more likely to experience depression. Right. So what's going on there? So you can't take the history out of the, out of the equation. And again, another level is how those expectations become internalized, right? So you have people who think, actually, I can't take it, right? I can, I don't need to seek help. First of all, I don't trust that my needs are going to be met. And second of all, I think I can cope with anything. So you've got a lot of people, particularly black women, that's what I'm going to to, to speak about. So you have a lot of black women who have never, ever attended to themselves, Right, because this is something that is so alien to them culturally. Right. Uh, so to be saying to people now, without taking this context into consideration, look after yourself, self-care, well-being, and they think, no, I'm, I'm okay, because they've never actually been in a position where they have been able to look after themselves, and because there's a lot of hurt as well, so there's a lot of trauma, and people think if I lift the uh, lid off, is just going to be monstrous and nobody's going to be able to contain it. And again, going back to some of the lived experiences that people have said, they said to me, I went to services to seek help and then they discharged me because they said they couldn't deal with my anger. Right, <laughs> God. So it's, it's complicated. We have a lot of work to do. But I don't think it's that by pathologizing people's survival mechanisms and what they need to do to right. adapt into a world that is very, very damaging and very dysfunctional. Right. I mean, it's interesting to me as well, like when, like the social trope of uh, the strong black yes, woman, yeah. like it's quite similarly in, in, I mean, there's, in loads of ways it's very different, but in some ways it's similarly constructed to the, to the 
working class man provider exactly. model mm. and like it's like the similar thing of like no I'm strong and mm. I don't have to yeah. I, I can't show my feelings I can't yeah. uh, cry or whatever in public or whatever they seem very similar they are very similar they yeah. are very similar and I think the similarities are rooted in, in capitalism uh, are rooted in the fact that those groups of people were the people where the essentially people doing the work they were people in the field they were right. doing the, in the, the, the most, most of the most of the laborious, demanding physically and emotionally work. So it did help for people to be sold this story that you are strong, that you can take it, so then we can send you down the mine for 15, 18 hours a day and uh, build a positive identity around right. the fact that you can survive that. Right, right, um, right, right. Same with women. Yeah, it's right, exactly. Yeah, not just working class yeah. men, but also working class yeah. women. Yeah. And, 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 you know, yeah, I mean, I'm sure black men also have uh, certain demands on how they're supposed to show their emotions as well. I mean, you know, the racialized view sort of sees black men as more of a, like, a monsters or whatever. Mm. But at the same time, monsters don't cry, monsters don't feel. Exactly. Um, exactly. <laughs> So, yeah. Something I was talking about script not long ago and strict constructed around social discourses. So you have, for instance, the, the notion that black women are fierce or black men don't cry. And now there is this notion that white working class are racist and, and how people find it very difficult to move outside of the script. So that I've been in, in a position, for instance, as a black woman, going back to the strong woman trope, where I've been in groups and I've been so distressed. But even when I was distressed, people were saying, but you're okay. You're right, you're not distressed. And it's like, okay. I'm clearly in tears now. So people don't know when the script is different from the expectation. Right. They don't really know what, what to do. And it's the same thing, I think, that happened with, with Mel, who show emotion and start crying. And people are like, okay, what do we do? Because that's not in our social script. We are yeah. not socialised to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of the writing that you've sort of done, or that I've seen lately, anyway, is kind of like around this idea of like how it's different, the idea of self-care is different for a, a black woman to kind of a, a, the middle class people who usually use the word self-care. I mean, what, what, what would you, how would you describe that? that? I think self-care for, for, for black women, I'm kind to have to say, I think must be, must be uh, different because we are socially located differently. But there's also the history that we haven't been allowed to look after ourselves. There hasn't been an expectation that we would look after ourselves since we have existed for a long time to be looking after people, right. to exist for other people. So turning this idea around of looking after ourselves means stopping looking after other people. Uh, it means essentially uh, centering our needs and our experiences rather than centering the needs of Society and by society, really, I mean white male or people at the highest echelon of, of the ladder of, of power. So, there is something about actually resisting the notion that we must be for other people, the notion that we are invulnerable, the notion that we don't matter. Because if you don't matter, of course, you don't need to look after yourself. It is completely irrelevant what state you are because nobody cares the level of pen that you're in. So I think it kind of challenged a lot 
of discursive notion about what it is to be a black woman the moment you said actually I'm going to look after myself and that's what I'm trying to um, I'm trying to impart in the community that looking after yourself is the is the greatest act of resistance that you can that you can do for those various reasons. That is not new, I'm sure, if you're familiar with, with um, intersectional feminism and black feminism. That is obviously not a new idea. They right. didn't come up with that. Uh, however, right. it is not an idea that has been incorporated within mental health services. Right. So this is what I think is fairly new, is the notion that actually we need to sell something different, a different package to black women to get them on board. So rather than saying that to marginalized group generally, to be saying to them that you are damaged psychologically or there is something wrong with you. What we're saying is that everything is right with you, but we are living in a world where you are assaulted constantly. And because you are assaulted constantly, right, it's even more important that you look after yourself. And also because you have been inferiorized and you have been pathologized for a long period of time, looking after yourself is also kind of putting two fingers up to power and saying, you know what? I don't give a fuck, sorry, to be rude. No, you can be rude. I'm going to be looking after myself because I matter, because I'm important, because my well-being matter. So that's something different that we say. It's yeah. a completely different thing. Yeah, no, it's, and I think it's, 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 a, it's a super powerful thing for people who have always been putting other people first right. to centre themselves. It's so I can totally see how that's a really powerful... I mean, it must be a powerful experience to go through. I mean, I yeah, I, I, and it's only something I can empathise from a distance from, I guess, although I have some understanding of, of what it's like to... to you know, my, I guess my mum... Even though she was a white woman, she was still a woman. And so if you're a woman, you're expected to put the needs of the family and the community... Self-sacrifice. Right. Right. It's this kind of strange strange thing. I believe in community. I believe in in, in us joining together and seeing our, our, our similarities as well as our differences. But at mm. the same time, community can be a real trap that, that gets into, like, yeah. I'm doing it for the community or the family, yeah. and then yeah. you lose your own you lose sense yourself. of self. Yeah. yeah, And I think that's, the, that's one of the most basic conflicts as, as human beings, is where we start and where we, we end as people, what's us and what's the other, and whether we can continue to, to exist or to survive in the midst of other people and other others, if you know, if you know what I mean. Yeah. So that is always going to be a conflict. There's always going to be, uh, to be intention. I'd say that perhaps the tension in Western society is a lot more because of the individualized way that we are socialized, you know, the ego is, is everything. So as long as I work towards my goal or my dreams, uh, then I'm fine, it makes me a you know, functional human being, which in other parts of the world you would be seen quite problematically. But of course for marginalized groups it's completely different because historically they have been, as I said, they haven't had the, the space or the permission, the social permission, to be saying that actually I'm going to do me. Right. This is not something that has been preserved for marginalized people, something that's been preserved for people with, uh, with power, sure. Econom- economic power, material power, because you need to have a certain amount of means to be saying that, well, you know, I'm going to kind of pause here, I'm going to think, I'm going to meditate, I'm going to do that. Because if you have to work, really hard to just make a living yep. uh, you don't have the time to contemplate right. to be contemplative to start with and you don't have the energy 
and that's something else. You know, we're tired right. at the end of the day. Uh, so just want to do what we have to do and sleep. But we need to realize that doing this for too long a period of time damages, damages us. So, yeah. And it's, it's interesting that the people who feel entitled to, be, to, to, to put themselves first, to have self-care, are, are often, yeah, like people who don't have any of those struggles that you're talking about, people who are like, you know, mindfulness and things like this, all mm. these kind of new, new words, which have some value, I think, but not for the way that they're used can be just like middle-class white people sort of like going off on gap years to find themselves or whatever, you know, that's, that's what the... Whereas, you know, like you say, people who are marginalised have got no... Like, they're just... It's every day is work work and struggle and, and, and be people being horrible to them on, in the streets and then they're expected to sort of, like, not have mental health issues. Well, it's yes, so weird. It, it, it is weird. It is weird. But I have to say that I, I'm starting to be very, very much uncomfortable with this idea of mental health issues, mental health problems, because... I don't know that they are that they are problems. I know that they hurt and mm, that they cause a lot of a, um, a lot of distress. But as to being a problem, I mm. don't know. There are reasons why, as human beings, we respond to certain ways right. to a very damaging situation. Um, and I think, regardless of what people talk about, all vulnerability and all that, and to me, it's nonsense, really. Because if masses of people respond a certain way to certain determinants or circumstances, then it's ridiculous to say that those people are simply more vulnerable or what have you. So there's something about also about thinking, well, do all those people will make the damage then? So they're the healthy people, so that's right. what we should aspire to, to right. be oppressive and to be damaging right, right, people. Right. So that's what I think. Mm, I don't know whether that's being mentally healthy. It's actually being... Oppressive, right? Uh, so yeah, I have a problem. You're right. You could, you, absolutely, you could flip it completely around yeah. and see kind of the narcissism and like violence of privilege as, as, as being that's the mental health. That's problem. the standard. Yeah, that's exactly. The, that's the problem. Exactly. But right now, it is set as the standard. But actually, you could easily argue that no, this is the problem. This is they are the one who have mental health problem, not the people who are impacted upon by their action. But you see, we back to definition and who set the definition and who whose interests are being right. served by the definition I mean, as we have them right now. I mean, that's something you see in it, debates around e- equality, I guess, as well. If, like, And it's what I sometimes, what, what I was referring to earlier on, I, I see in feminist groups of, 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 of white women suddenly positioning themselves within the what I see as an oppressive patriarchal position. Yeah, that's it. It's like people aspire to, like, it's, it's, it's not about... St- it's not about deprogramming men and stopping them from being oppressive. It's, it's about letting me in the club to be as oppressive as men. That's that, right. That's it, weird. It's, it's about wanting a, a piece of the oppression, wanting a piece um, in terms of being able to oppress other people. Right. So we get back, we go back to this notion of you know going out and harassing men and white tears and all that because I'm, I'm the receiving end of of this kind of of harassment. Then it's okay. I can dish it out kind of mentality that we want also to be oppressive and that's what equality is for a lot of um, a lot of white feminists actually and I can't remember who said that it might have been I don't know whether it's Bell Hook it might have been Bell Hook and she said that something to the effect of equality for white women is means becoming like men having the same privilege as, as men and equality for black women is having justice 
for everyone right. or something like that. It's not exactly that, but something um, in that spirit. And I don't even know if it was Bell Hook, but he was definitely a black American feminist. Uh, so I think there is a difference between who I would call as, as white feminists and, and, and the rest. And also to be clear, simply having white skin doesn't make you a white feminist. Right. I mean, we need, to be, we need to be clear. Yeah, no, That's it's good to be fair. clear on that again. Yeah, it's, it's, it, white feminism is in a way a phrase now, like a concept mm. like that both me and you are quite aware of, but listeners might not be. Might so not it's be very aware. good to clarify that yeah. or, it just, or it does sound like yeah. we're just kind of picking on people for their, their skin colour, which skin. Isn't, isn't right. Yeah. And you, I guess you don't even have to be white to be a white feminist. Uh, that's absolutely the point. Um, I think white feminism essentially is about centering the needs of certain people, i.e. white women, middle class women, straight women, able-bodied women, Christian women ideally. Uh, so there is something about exclusion. It's just the feminism that is exclusive of difference. It's a feminism that can't deal with intersectionality. And it's a feminism that aspired to my sense to be the new oppressive brine of people, it seems to me. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit allergic to, to it. But I do recognise that not all white feminists are white. I think that's important to right. say that. Yeah. Right. How did you come to be someone who is interested in, in therapy and, and, and psychology? Oh, God. Um, so many, so many <laughs> things. So many things. I think I've always, when I wanted, I think when I was in high school or when I was in my early teens, I wanted to be a psychologist. But I think I was discouraged from different people, actually, different group of people. First of all, my parents were like, yeah, I don't think so. That's not real science, is it? That's, <laughs> that's not real work. So my parents went to, to Cain. Uh, that wasn't the main problem, though. The school wasn't too, too keen either. It's that, yeah, no, we don't think so. So that was one thing. So I did different things. I did a bit of studied a bit of literature, I did a bit of sociology, and then I had my child. Uh, and I think it coincided with me living in France right. to be in, to come in here. So I had quite a hard time, and then I decided to uh, kind of reevaluate life goal. But mainly it was because I had a hard time, I had a hard time in life, and I was asking myself a lot of questions. Uh, I think I probably was depressed. I don't know whether I was diagnosed, but I probably was de- depressed. So I kind of, I think it, it kind of led me back to what I want to do with my life, and being quite conscious that. Part of, the, part of the reason why I was feeling so low was to do with the social circumstances and issues to do with migration, issues to do with difference, issues to do with race, issues to do with sex. So all those things, thinking I want to do, I want to do something about, about equality and about supporting marginalised groups. So I had two options because at that point in time it was about what do I do with my, you know, I had a first degree, so it was what do I do now? And I was thinking whether I was going to do law I was, or I was going to do psychology. It was one or, one or the other, but also around marginalisation and, and equality and human rights issues. Um, right. and, and then I went to... It was really, really, I just flipped a coin. It, you know, it was law or psychology, really. And then I went for psychology. Um, and then I started working, volunteering with asylum seekers, mainly, and I accompanied asylum seekers and then I got into very kind of activist mental health around race equality and racism there was people dying at the time in mental health services so I guess my urge to be more politicized around inequality and around oppression was served through my work so I'd say if you if you were analytically inclined, you would say that I have subliminated 
my own needs around oppression and my own experience around marginalization towards working to, to a bigger cause and, and to try and make a difference um, at that level. I don't know, I've, 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 as a, as a, as a you know, grown up as a child of, of migrants, I don't know whether I've seen a lot of formal mental health diagnosis in, in, in all the generation or in, in my parents. There was a there wasn't a lot of that. There's some distress, there was some anger as well. I don't know whether you know but I'm I'm a, I come from the inner city of, of, of Paris. Right. So there was a lot of there was a lot of distress and a lot of anger. But predominantly there was a sense of acceptance of this is our lot kind of thing, that we're never going to be accepted that we're always going to be treated unfairly. So that was a very, that was white uh, amongst the, the, the older generation, certainly around my parents and their friends. There was a thing, but, you know, yeah, yeah, you have a different, yeah, it's not your country, so it's normal for them to be nasty right. to you. So there was this expectation. And I think amongst our generation and certainly the younger generation, there was a sense that actually we're not going to put up with this crap, that that's not acceptable. Mm. But also, again, we were born in, in the countries of West second generation and we were saying that's not that's not acceptable and that there was a lot of distress also so now we're talking about more more formalized diagnosis of depression and anxiety and eating disorder so there was a lot of that in this generation which didn't exist or didn't appear to be to be in existence in in the generation of our parents right. so i wondered and this is something that i've been doing a lot of thinking lately whether there has there was something around transmission there's something about transference oh, of trauma, trauma down that, generations. yes yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm i'm convinced that this is what's going on with second generation that a lot of a lot of people a lot of us have kind of experienced a lot of distress when their parents hadn't there's also something about identity of course and uh, trying to find yourself when you find yourself uprooted and dislocated from your ancestry if you like I think that's part of the that's part of the factor as well but I do think that our parents trauma around colonization particularly and around their history in France and the hostility that they faced as first generation of migrants has been transferred to the to later generation. That's part of the reason why I feel that it is the marginalized uh, right to absolutely define what is real to them mm -hmm. in order to maintain some kind of sanity in, in this world. Right, there's, it's, it's a, there's an Audrey Lord quote, right, isn't there, about like defining yourself for yeah. yourself, yeah. which has always resonated with me even though I'm a white man, but I'm, I assume it must resonate so much more for people of colour because they don't get to define, like, even though I feel like often I don't get to define myself, I kind of do. Like, it's, mm -hmm. like, there are lots of lots and lots of situations where I absolutely do because of my, my social power, which isn't available to other people necessarily. You're French and you come from France, yeah. right? Although, like, how you might not define... Like, it's always complicated how people define themselves from where they come from. And you've come from France, which is a massively racist colonial uh, power. power, to England, which is also a massively racist colonial power, although a little, I think we've got a little bit less kind of uh, global power than France at the moment, but we're still, we're still pretty, pretty, pretty bad. Mm -hmm. What's the experience of living in those two different countries been like? Um, it's so interesting. One of the reasons why I've always I've come as a child uh, with my parents. Right. Um, God, I can't remember. I, I, I don't know what I'm looking for. The the job my, my dad used to do. What's the equivalent of uh, people who who, who who pilot, not pilot, but pilot um, boats? What you call them? Oh, uh, 
Well, so, so, yeah, I guess like a, a boat driver or something. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What, what a boat driver? What, 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 whatever. Yeah, yeah. I'm not I, sure. I, but I, someone I, who drives a boat. Yeah, something like that. Um, so we came. We came as a I, we came as a family cruise work, um, and then I came again as a teen. And I was always attracted to London, actually, particularly because. There were so many different people in terms of being, I don't want to say something that might come across as offensive, but I saw a lot of punk. There was a lot right. of, there was a culture of standing out, right. which was very different from, from France. I remember watching you know, people with tattoos, people with pink hair. At, at the time, I think that was something that attracted me quite a bit because I thought that people had the space to just be them. So yeah. I constructed a fantasy around people being more free. At the time when I left, certainly in my in my Latinos, I was starting to be quite feeling quite alien, alienated in France. There's a lot of racism, particularly in school, and I thought that actually coming to England would offer me better opportunities. To, to be what I want to be in life. So that was a driver to come here. It wasn't the only reason, but I was a key driver for why I, I, I came here. And then I came here, and then I realised that racism in this country is very different to the racism in France. I don't think there's less racism. Right? I think there's a myth. Mm. There's a lot of that, and a lot of I people agree. of colour particularly. And perhaps because they are so disillusioned with France, they, you know, the grass must be greener somewhere else and I think that to some degree I had those this this view as well when I came. But it's not greener. It's just different. Right. It's very different. I mean uh, in France, the racism that you get is very tend to be, especially back in the days when I left about 10, 12 years or so ago. It was very much out there, very much in your face, very much overt, so there would be no doubt whatsoever as to you know, people disliking you or being hostile to you because of your because of your color, right? There was no doubt. Usually, things are starting to shift a little bit, but still, we're not at the stage where Britain is right now, where everything, mainly pre-Brexit, has been under under the carpet, um, and the notion of of liberalism and neoliberalism has kind of taken the nation by storm. So everybody is a liberal now. The, Most people aspire yeah. to be to be liberal. So there is things that you simply can't say right, in this country, right, right. particularly if you are more of a professional or more public figure. There are things that you would be damned forever and a day for saying, right, if you say something that is considered racist. Now, again, back to critical thinking, uh, because there are, of course, as we said earlier, there's various ways to be racist and, and, and uh, to be bigoted. And one of the ways to be bigoted is actually not to do anything when people are being dehumanised or uh, harassed or things like that. So you get a lot of that in this country, for instance, where we see people saying things that are out of control on occasion, rarely, and then people are, are silent. Or you have systems that treat people of colour really badly and then people around are kind of silent. I, I, I say that sometimes to distinguish Britain and France is that I think that Britain's racism is through act of omissions more than it is through act of commission. And where, you ha- where in France it is, it is really more act of, of, um, of commission. At the same time, there is something about France where there is almost a pride in being bigoted 
So there is something about, mm. yeah, it's our country, what have you. Um, if you don't like it, get the hell out. There is still that notion. It's not, even here you have that, but mm -hmm. it's still marginalized. It's not like a national thing. In France, you still have this as a fairly kind of white, widespread view that actually it is our country. Right. Mm. So if you don't like it, you can get the hell out. And also the, the sexual aspect that, you, that I find in, in, in French racism that I don't find in this country. And perhaps it's just that, again, um, Britain and France in terms of sexuality and the culture on sex are very, very different. Right, right, right. right, right. Uh, but I do find that in racism, the sexism and the sexualized aspect have kind of seeped through so openly. I don't get that in this country, mm. not as much as I get that in France. That's really interesting. I mean, yeah. I mean, I always sort of think like there's a lot of like people in the UK who like to sort of often see us as better than other places. Mm. Like France is arrogant, but I always think like, you know, that's pretty much a, a, a characteristic of people in Britain as well. The arrogance of, of this country is just as arrogant as France. But it's interesting to hear the the nuances yeah. around those two. Because we're so similar, these two countries, even though there's, there's a lot of people who like to have this kind of rivalry or whatever between France and Britain. I mean, they're both colonial powers and that's they're right. both... I, I don't like either of those uh, <laughs> these places. The history, um, yeah, yeah historically and kind of culturally, the individuals are, are lovely, and the the countries, are, you know, the countryside is lovely. So I guess before I wrap up with the last question, one of the things that I know you've done this last year is you've co-run the Predatory Peacekeepers oh, yeah. campaign, um, which you know I, I've I've signed and, and done as much signal boosting as I can, but I, I'm not. I haven't got that many followers, so whatever I can do. But Thank you, I appreciate it. But, I mean, it, so what is the Predatory peace, Peacekeepers campaign? Okay. And I guess before we go into this, maybe um, there should be a sort of, like, content note to a certain extent that will probably touch on stuff, that sexual assault and stuff like that. Yeah. So people should be aware that's coming up. Sorry. That's okay. Thank you, yes. <laughs> uh, so do take care if you have been sexually assaulted or if you have a history of, of abuse. I'll try to keep it moderate right. in, in, in what I say. But essentially, the Predatory Peacekeeper campaign is a campaign which came to light earlier this year when a report came out around the Code Blue. Code Blue is, is, is a Canadian charity. They've written a report which was kind of circulated in the press around the conduct of soldiers, French soldiers, in the main at the time in the Central African Republic, CAR, as, as uh, it is abbreviated. And the, the report essentially, I don't know how to say that nicely, brought to light a number of very disturbing findings around rape and sexual abuse of children in the Central African Republic by people commissioned to keep peace and to protect the local population. So those were UN soldiers or French soldiers and the allegation was so grotesque, mm -hmm. so grotesque, including forcing children to have sex with dogs, for instance, yeah. and one child died as a result of the abuse that we felt 
compelled to make some noise around the campaign, around the around the issue. At the time, there was no campaign. At the time, there was very few media pieces around car in particular, because there had been, of course, pieces dating back maybe 10, 12 years around sexual abuse and abuse, including allegation of murder um, by UN soldiers in various peacekeeping countries in Cambodia, in Somalia, in Haiti, in Bosnia. I mean, pretty much in most countries where, right. where peacekeepers were, were, were posted. But there was a silence when it came to car, and we felt that the silence was to do with who the perpetrator were, French, French peacekeepers and UN peacekeepers, but also because of the colonial history, car being, of course, a former colony right. of France. So there was a massive, first of all, power differential. It's a bizarre decision to even send French troops to a, a place that they formerly colonised as peacekeepers. Well, that uh, happened all the time. Right, no, I, sh- I know it happens all the time, but it's... Um, but yes, yeah. it's, uh, it's interesting, to say the least. So uh, we started this campaign and essentially what we demanded at the time was uh, the withdrawal of the French troop. We wanted the victim to be, to be supported and we wanted the recommendation which had been made by an independent panel, judge-led panel, uh, looking into the abuse in car to be implemented. And there was a number of recommendations which were made, particularly around changing the structure so that accountability becomes a reality. Because as you may know, one of the reasons why peacekeepers get away with abuse is because the UN says, well, there is nothing that we can do. It's down to member states to, uh, to prosecute and to arrest the perpetrators, which to some degree, of course, is true. In fact, it is factually true. Legally, it is true. However, we were saying that there were still issues to do with duty of care in relation, for instance, to collating the evidence which they were underground, so they were in a position to collect evidence they haven't done so in car, so there was a lot of evidence which were lost, and also there was a culture of not wanting to know, so there was a culture of, for instance, key staff being victimised or intimidated so that allegations were not brought to light or kind of cascaded to the highest level. There were also issues to do with the victims or the alleged victim coming to light, them not being supported. So there was very little thing on the ground. So as a result of the of the petition, we feel at least, we've had some success in implementing some change. So for instance, the French troops have been withdrawn from car. And I remember when we started and we said we want the French troops to get the hell out. People were saying that it's never going to happen. You know that is, you know, it's just too ambitious. So we're a little bit conflicted, but we said, you know what? We're just going to put our request out there, and quite amazingly, the UN implemented a new resolution about the withdrawal of troops where there are allegation. Uh, I can't remember what the terminology was. I don't think it was serious, credible. I think they said credible allegation and that they be uh, repatriated just you know a few months after we launched the, the, the petition and the campaign so French troops have been removed there's been a lot of communication by the UN uh, so we've had interacted with the UN including via social media and, and on the BBC and they've said yes we're going to do this we're going to do that uh, you know we're going to do this that and the other but they've never actually come back transparently in terms of the progress that they've made 
particularly around the support offered for the victim. So we don't know, for instance, how many how many women and, and girls have been reached by their efforts. We don't know. We don't know what the the package of support, they call it psychosocial support, which means nothing and anything really. So we don't know what the package looks like. We don't know who is delivering the, the support. That's quite important because there is a long history of Western therapists or psychologists going to third world countries and imposing, mm-hmm. you know, very westernized way of working with distressed after trauma. So we are saying we know very little. So there's been a lot of pledges, but there's been very little action, very little uh, communication in terms of actually what have you done. So we are continuing the campaign, and it's been a very difficult journey, actually, very difficult journey, because we, I, I have to be honest, I don't think we've had the support, certainly I don't think that I've had the support that I felt that we would have, or that the issue would have, so right. that was what's taken me by, by, I must say, by, by surprise. I thought we did it with children, we did it with, you know, gendered violence, we did it with issues to do with such a huge differential in power that people would feel compelled to kind of make some noise to help or to donate or but actually no actually no it's taken us about i think about two and a half months or three months to reach 10,000 signature which is not insignificant i mean it's a lot of signature but but i remember there was a petition in the summer around wearing heels in this country so women being forced to wear heels at work which of course is an issue you know it is an issue but this petition i think as a matter of 48 hours or so gathered 500,000 signature so that's just to give you a sense of where we stand there was also a petition on ivv blue ivy she, I don't know if you read that, but there was a petition on Blue Ivy's hair. She's got Afro hair. So people were not happy because apparently her Afro wasn't maintained as it should be maintained. So they, they did a petition because the hair was, was looking dried and uncapped and not looking nice and lovely. <laughs> and that gathered, I don't know how many signature, but a lot more than our petition right. <laughs> in a matter of, of days. No, it was, I mean, I, I thought it was shocking the, the, <laughs> the, way that, the way that, yeah, those kind of examples really bring it out of how shocking it was. But I mean, you guys have worked so hard as well and you've done lots of work and yeah. I've seen, you know, seen all of it like on Twitter and t- not all of it, but like a lot of it and how, how tireless you, you guys were working and, you know, you've written lots of, you know, you've written mainstream yes, articles in, in mainstream press and you've done like, you know, getting into the mainstream press, I would have thought also would have meant that the, the, the yeah. numbers went up and they did but but, but it's not massively right and and, yeah. and also I was so shocked initially that there was quite a lot of like criticism of how you were doing it like yeah. rather than just supporting you yeah. to do it and saying yeah. you know if people didn't like the way that you were phrasing it you'd expect people would say um can I help you to yeah. you know I, I, I whatever like it would still be patronizing but at least it would be supportive that's you know? right that's right we're very strange to watch. There was, there was uh, some, uh, some antipathy, there was some hostility, uh, borderline abuse actually, and I have, said, I have to say I haven't been at the receiving end of that, but Sam, right. with the co-signatory, has had that. Um, so I think there's been a history because of her being the editor-in-chief and the founder of, of Media Diversified, uh, is for some people, controversial um, media outlet. I mean, it's for one, some of the, people, the, one of the best media outlets out I think there, it is. in my opinion. I think it is. But, you know, it's, it's a challenging media outlet. So some people have problems with it, which I can understand. Um, at the same time, there has been a lot of, um, I think, kind of 
very covert kind of racism assumption about us, about the campaign. So about us, for instance, the assumption that we could not possibly run this campaign because, what, we're too black women, or maybe we're too loud, or maybe we don't do things the way that maybe some other people uh, might do. So the assumption has been that we were quite incompetent. Of course, it wasn't phrased as such, but really that was the assumption. So we had that. At the same time, the women who have been abused and the children who have been abused have had that as well, that possibly if they don't know what they're talking about. It is of their own making or they are fabricating. I mean, the French press has been outrageous, you know, calling them liars, um, that they wanted food, so they was, you know, it was, even the UN has said transactional sex, which is, they cannot be transactional sex. If they, I mean, they can't, there's no consent bloody hell. I don't know how you're going to call that a transaction when there's no consent. So you've had that. So I think the way that we have been, the way that we have been treated as campaigners has clearly mirrored the way mm. that the women has been treated in terms of lack of credibility, in terms of completely erasure or, or silence, and really unwillingness to engage with the issue, which is what the women found on the ground when they were disclosing their abuse, and everybody was kind of walking away right. from that. So we, we, we had that as well. So it's given us a tiny, um, a tiny kind of insight into um, what goes on in on the ground for those for those for those little girls and boys as well. Some boys have been have been um, have been abused. Um, we had to take some break. Personally, right. I had to take some break from the campaign right. um, because it was just too demanding. Emotionally, the issue were quite difficult. On top of that, there was the there was the backlash. But more difficult, I think, certainly speaking for me, um, and I think also for some, was it just the silence, the kind of indifference right. that we found, which was very difficult to deal with. You know, I have something like three thousand or so followers, fifty percent. 50% of them are involved in the mental health or well-being or, you know, issues to do with gendered violence right. or child abuse. Right. Um, and I have at least, I'd say easily 200 psychologists follower, possibly a bit more. Um, and out of those 200, possibly two people, two or three people kind of retweeted things on throughout the campaign right. on predatory peacekeepers. So you have to ask yourself some question. Why is it that you're not getting engaged? Why are you not getting... Why is that story not speaking to you? Right. Um, and those are questions that people do not want to face. They don't want to, to answer. Well, it's interesting as well how many... Um, campaigns or like charities that people give to that are kind of colonial in the way that they yes. exist and this is a campaign against uh, UN peacekeepers it's definitely you can't say it's like it's not a question should we involve ourselves or should we not involve ourselves yeah. we're involved that's right and it's us doing the damage that's so right. it's, and and so it's it's so interesting to me that people will give to all of these other things and yet like you know you weren't even asking for money you were just yeah. asking for time, support yeah. In, yeah. initially yeah, yeah. exactly it's, but then we asked for we asked for money, and uh, <laughs> I yeah. think we we managed to raise about just under three hundred pounds or something ridiculous like that. Uh, you know that I could easily I, I could have given that for my ticket. In fact, I wanted to donate a grant, but then I thought, yeah. okay, what am I going to do realistically? 
with a grant. Right. We wanted to have in post a campaign officer to take the heat out um, right. of, of the campaigning, to have someone to do the kind of coordination work right. uh, so that we could be more strategic in our thinking. We couldn't do that. So the campaign has kind of halted to some degree. It's still there. Uh, right now, I think we're just reassessing what's there, you know, tactic- tactically was the best way to come to come back. It's still in the background, yeah. so I must say it's not died down. No, no. Um, but when you're working towards issues to do with trauma, there's a real risk that you might become traumatised yourself. yourself yeah. So you do need to look after yourself. Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, it's been really great meeting okay. you today and, and, and talking you. to you. Um, the last question that I ask uh, everybody is, do you have anything to plug? Okay. First of all, when, you, when I asked this question, I think I kind of inferred what it meant. Remember, English is not my first ah, language. Of course, no, that's and fair that's enough. Not, that's so, not an expression that I'm familiar with, right. but I'm inferring that you meant brain. No, have you got anything to... So that's, this, is, this is interesting, and this is the first time that, uh, that this has come up. But it should have, I mean, I should have thought of this myself. Um, so it's, do you have anything to promote or to, ah. rec- like, to recommend or whatever? Ah. So it might be quite often people take it to be their own project. Um, but sometimes people go more broadly with it. Ah, so, so however okay. you want to take it. All right. So things to promote. First of all, I'd say the campaign, uh, Predatory Peacekeepers. Thank you very much for bringing that into, into the discussion today. I would appreciate if people could continue to make some noise about it. If people have any ideas in terms of funds raising, in terms of how we could move forward in this context of apathy, that would be quite appreciated. Um, there is a tumble there, um, predatory peacekeeper. So if you go, if you Google that, you will you will have access to that. And there's lots of article and resources of everything that we've done to date. Alternatively, if you hashtag predatory peacekeepers on Twitter, then you'll have access to 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 that resource. So that would be the first thing. In terms of other things to plug, thank you very much for the expression. Now I shall <laughs> I shall I shall use it. The things to place major diversified, fantastic, fantastic work in terms of challenging mainstream narratives and and bringing news from a completely different vantage point. Please support the work if you can. It's fantastic. It's fantastic reading. I think some of the best writers write on that mm-hmm. platform. I so agree do, with that. do 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 read to read them. Uh, now we hear. Have you heard of that? I don't know whether you listened to that. Uh, oh, the, you, the uh, podcast that yeah. you do. Yeah, I have. I, I have listened How did you find that? I really enjoyed it. Oh, good. Yeah. Good, good, good. Is it t- I think there hasn't been one since August, though. There hasn't been one. We've, uh, we've, we've had a break because of, of the summer and a lot of us have been busy. <laughs> but something should come up. I think we've, we went in the studio not long ago, a few weeks ago, so something should come up. And that's Listen on Mixcloud, isn't it? I that's think. right, this Mixcloud. And uh, the company, uh, the organisation kind of running this is uh, Real Media, also an independent BME-led media outlet. So something that people might want to look into. Certainly, I love going on this podcast because I think it's like I take the glove off. I am completely uncensored, you know. Yeah. I have one Asian woman, I have a black person. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's like, you know what, we're not going to be sensitive to anything. Right. We're just here to share our truth. So I think it gives you a very different, perhaps more raw experience of what it is to be a person of colour in Britain today. So I would recommend it if people want to be familiar with issues to do with oppression and, and racism. But most importantly, how we live that 
day to day, how, how we experience that and how we impact on our life. And I would promote my website. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, race Reflection. So that's race and then reflection in one in one word. It's taken me about two years to three maybe now to write uh, quite a bit of article around equality, around mental health, around issues of, of uh, discrimination, but also issues of mental health treatment and psychological provision. So if you're into this kind of stuff, do give me a try. I'll always engage with people who get back to me with comments if they are done respectfully. Mm-hmm. I haven't actually had a lot of trolling by a reflection, actually. What I've had is a lot of people asking for advice and sending me three pages email. Um, and I used to say, I'm going to answer, I'm going to, to kind of get back to everybody. And I've stopped doing that because <laughs> some emails are just too long. Yeah, I don't, yeah. you know, it, it would take me three hours. Can you imagine if I do that just every week? Right. It's too much time. But generally, if you send me an email via the contact page of a reflection and your image is, is one paragraph long <laughs> and you're not asking an essay or something, yeah, yeah. I will get back to you. I will get back to you. Well, brilliant. Well, it's been yeah great to meet you and thanks for coming on. Uh, the last thing I ask uh, all my guests to do is to say goodbye to the audience. <laughs> Au revoir. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs> you can... Follow Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter at GBA Podcast. You can like it on Facebook. www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk is one place you can find it. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted. <laughs>